Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Dixon won his fifth IndyCar title a week or so ago, making him the second most successful in terms of number of titles behind only AJ Foyt, and he's also number three in terms of outright victories behind just Foyt and and Mario Andretti. So I think by any measure, he's an IndyCar legend, yet he remains one of the most unassuming drivers out there. He's almost uh, does everything he does on the quiet. You just get to the end of the race and say, oh, Scott Dixon's one. He's just one of those drivers. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me to talk about his title year and, and really to look at where Scott Dixon stands among the greats uh, of what might generically be called champ car racing, is first Tom Errington. Now, Tom, you've been following the season closely with your uh, American brief element of your element of your job. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how, he, how he's won, but it is true, he, he is a bit of a, he's almost, the not, he's about the most anonymous great racing driver of, of this century, isn't he? Yeah, and, and that's a great feat to be able to achieve in IndyCar, which is so random. How many times have you seen a driver disappear for 10 seconds to somehow come out of a pit stop 15th or something like that? Dixon always seems to rise above that, and I think it's one of the great skills of a modern IndyCar driver is to somehow stay above all the chaos that will inevitably happen. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great talent. I'm sure we'll get a little bit into that uh, shortly. Also joining me is a, it's actually a, a momentous occasion because we have a an Autosport podcast debutant, uh, Matt Beer, who uh, I, mean, I don't know why we've not got you on so well, but I'm very pleased to see you've, you've dressed up for the occasion. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm wearing the same shirt I wore for my wedding for my Autosport podcast debut because... Uh, Frankly, having been here for about 20 years and not managed to turn up to a podcast yet, I thought I should mark it in style. I think we may be giving people the wrong impression because I think uh, well, both myself and Tom had the privilege of attending your wedding. <laughs> and we, we will say it was full of character in that it wasn't perhaps especially conventional in a wonderful way, I might add. <laughs> We're also not wearing our wedding shirts. Yes, that's that's very true. Well, Tom did wear a jumper to my wedding, so... It was that He's kind of wedding. Off. Yeah, well, well, there was a bar involved, so I don't think there's anything at all, at all wrong with that. So, uh, yes, but but it, it does raise the raise the level. It's sort of white with a sort of blue floral pattern. Is it? Is it one of your one of your hipster shirts? <laughs> <laughs> you don't get hipsters in the West Country. Um, I just thought it's such a visual medium, a podcast, that I should make sure I'm looking as um, aesthetically striking as possible for it. Yeah, you've, you've not overly triumphed in that front, I'm afraid. But uh, but we're very, very, very pleased to have you on. It's, it's been it's been far too long. So let's start off with Tom Dixon's 2018 triumph. He clinched the title at, uh, at Sonoma. How did he win the title? He Other than just getting more points than everyone else, which I think was the answer you're about to give. It was. Yeah, he managed to win the title by just staying out of trouble. Which in a season where four drivers won three races and it was spread out totally across the field. That was the way to do it. It was this remarkable consistency. I mean, I can only imagine what Rossi must have been thinking in Portland when there was an enormous crash. Marco Andretti's flipped upside down, smoke everywhere, and somehow Scott Dixon drives out of it unscathed, continues and picks up a big points haul again. It's it's the thing that we've always associated with Dixon is this remarkable consistency, and he did it again this year. I think his averaging average finish was around 4.2 as well. Rossi, his nearest rival, was around 5.7, so he's always able to just get that few more places over everyone else and slowly that builds into the sort of 29 point advantage he had going into that final round it's amazing if you look at his results he's got two times double figure results 11th at Long Beach and, and 12th at Iowa and then his worst result other than that is a is a six and yet that sort of ability to drive around through under over whatever madness is going on in a category like IndyCar which which provides plenty of incident and uh, an opportunity to get yourself in trouble it's it's a amazing feat it's not it's not luck is it let's put it that way because it, once it happens a few times there's something about what he does the way he reacts the calmness that, that allows him to do that yeah absolutely one of the big factors this year as well was a new car that was so different to the one before a lot less downforce it's more about how you manage your braking zones tire degradation was much more of a thing as well and a lot of teams were finding that road courses were much more difficult this year and Dixon found qualifying there a bit more difficult uh, so did a few other drivers yeah he's still able to carve his way up for a field still get those good finishes and Mike Hull at Ganassi before the season started said to me that the one thing they always know with Dixon is if there's a big rule change, he will adapt to it quicker than everyone else. And by his standards, it was a slightly slower start of the season, maybe in the first three or four or five races. But after that, it's just peak Scott Dixon again. And Matt, obviously you're a great uh, follower of, of American racing, particularly American open wheel racing. The way Dixon does things, it is, it is amazingly dull to do something so spectacular, isn't it? I mean, the, the greats make the extraordinary look ordinary don't they he has made it look easy but it's interesting i was i was thinking while watching the uh, sonoma race you can't get a much more contrasting character in motorsport to dixon than uh, mark marquez in moto gp but actually how they're going about their seasons these days is quite similar they're both capable of being 
aggressive and super fast when they need to be, but they can peg it back as well. And they've got a great sense for going, I don't need to take that risk. I don't need to go for that uh, dicey move or go wheel to wheel with that Larry person and knowing when to be really quick and when to not just not so much settle for points, but to go, this is the maximum that's practically possible. I'll, I'll go for that. And I think Sonoma itself is a good example where Dixon definitely hung back from having a crack at Ryan Hunter Ray when there were chances at the restart. Um, because, you know, you wouldn't take on your title rival's teammate for the race lead if you, if you didn't have to in that circumstance. He's he's capable of being super super quick, obviously. You didn't really see it in qualifying this year with Ganassi not on Penske's pace in qualifying spec on the road courses particularly. Um, but there's no doubt about his raw speed as well. He just knows when to use it and uh, and when not to. In a, so he can keep on racking up points in what's really a chaotic series more often than not. So is this just a question, Tom, of a driver who in harness with uh, with the Ganassi team is really able to look at the big picture and not get too obsessed with the headline lap times and think, right, this is going to be a car that's going to be there in the race, even if what happens in, in qualifying isn't as spectacular as, as it could be. Yeah, that's absolutely a, a fact of addiction. And as Matt mentioned, the, the restraints are an important part. There was a, the one moment where probably the only time Dixon would ever get nervous was when Rossi was coming to unlap himself and Rossi was really on a charge. The setup was all around doing a quick short stint to get himself back into a good position on track. Dixon held him up a little bit, but you could see Rossi was getting increasingly more agitated and he just made the correct decision of, he's a lap down, I'll let him pass, I'll get on with my own race. And everything at Ganassi is built around that Dixon mentality and style. This year, going back to two cars, what Ganassi's always been good at doing and allowing Dixon to have to just focus on himself, have a teammate who can provide the supporting data he needs, perhaps not as much as they really would have wanted this year, but enough. It was much better for him to be in that situation than having four drivers in a team, the potential for distraction there. And Dixon being able to just focus on what he does best is a huge advantage, particularly when you're going up against a Penske that has more resources, obviously much more experience, you know, huge driver lineup. There's a lot of factors there that you've got to overcome. His teammate this year, of course, being Ed Jones, who mm. moved over from Dale Coyne Racing, had an impressive rookie year, but slightly disappointing in the in the reduced two car line. Obviously had four cars the 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 year before. But this this thing with Dixon, should we be getting a bit more excited about him, do you think, Matt, that because it, it, it and, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, but it's always oh Dixon's won the title. Well, that, that's what you'd expect to happen. Of course, it is. It's a bit like Schumacher winning <laughs> the title sort of fifteen odd years ago with with Ferrari. Not in that there's this grinding dominance and he wins every race, but it's just you just have, you have an IndyCar season. Oh, Scott Dixon's in there and he's going to win a title every few years. Whatever happens. I do think it can get perceived like that outside people who follow IndyCar regularly. And in some ways, that's a real shame because what Dixon does year in, year out has been remarkable. Um, the one that struck me in the last few years, Road America last year, where I think Penske was one, two, three or one, two, three, four for session after session after session. And you thought this is going to be an obvious Penske walkover. And Dixon came from behind them all on the grid. And I think he mostly jumped in the pit stops rather than on track. But he outperformed Penske at the most awesome course on the IndyCar calendar just through being better and driving faster and what was almost certainly an inferior package and he always produces um, several drives like that every year it's always in him when he needs it um, he is a quiet character but I, I found just listening to his interviews the last couple of weeks when it was coming down to a title decider there's an awful lot of emotion in there as well he, he talked about feeling like he was going to cry in the cockpit, okay, a little bit sarcastically, but um, after that Portland crash where he had cars landing on him upside down and he thought his title bid was over, he, you know, he properly felt the emotion of that. Um, he was very quick to say after Sonoma that once he saw Rossi with damage on lap one, he was thinking Rossi's going to pull off some kind of crazy strategy, as is possible in the car with the, uh, the yellow flag and pit stop closure rules, and he's going to come back and beat me from last now. 
there's a, there's an awful lot going on in his head, and because he it's not it's not monotone, but he's not the most certainly compared to kind of previous Ganassi heroes like a Zanardi or a Montoya. He's not the most hand wavy character. He's not doing big spectacular donuts. He's not climbing up a, a fence and, and dancing on television <laughs> and that kind of thing, is he? Well, you know, I've, I'm sure I've seen Dixon do the odd donut after a win, but. You almost, because your expectation of him is lower key than that, you probably didn't even notice that he did them. You know? <laughs> Whereas, you know, with someone like a, as an Adi or a Castroneves character is celebrated for being more flamboyant. I think because Dixon is so, he's very economical with his driving, and also he's economical in how he expresses himself. He doesn't he doesn't waste emotion. Um, when you listen to what he says and watch in more depth how he drives, there's plenty of passion and emotion there. But I agree, it is quite a hard sell um, to a wider audience. And it does seem a bit like he's been around forever, which is actually a massive tribute to how good he is to sustain, uh, well, he's on something like 330 old races at the top level across uh, Champ Car and IndyCar now. And he's basically been a, a title contender virtually every year. He had a car anywhere near good enough to do it. And to sustain that for two decades is incredible, but it does kind of also promote this. It's Dixon again. He's been around forever, which is a shame, but I, I can see why it comes across like that in other parts of the world, particularly. 2001, of course, was his first season in carts, and he had a couple of years in Indy Lights before that, winning the title in in 2000. But you know, when I say that the thing about that, that it's almost predictable and boring, there's there's a there's a just a brilliance in a driver who's able to do that. And, and I think, in terms of his performances this season, he's he's the deserving champion, isn't he, Tom? He's 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 that gold standard driver. And I think with a team and a car that's working well, Dixon's going to take and a huge amount of beating from anyone who wants to, uh, to to get more points than him over a whole season. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, the big talk points this year was, was Andretti's resurgence. It really struck with the manufacturer hero kit. The staffing balance wasn't quite right as well. And last year, they got it to a point where Hunter Ray, Rossi were really comfortable and that kind of helped them prepare nicely for this year. And then when they had this hero kit, Rossi in particular stepped forward to have a real breakout season. It was fantastic. Wheel to wheel, there were few better this year. Strategy-wise, if Andre asked him to hit a fuel numbers, pull off a crazy stop, he would do it comfortably. He was excellent on that front. So that gave Dixon a lot of things to think about up front. And the fact that it never looked like he was two-phased speaks volumes. It's a bit like the Schumacher fair, like you say. We can talk about how many titles Schumacher's won, how dominant he is, and that kind of doesn't tell the story of some of the competition he's had to face in those years as well. It does a disservice to the rivals in some respect. And looking at the uh, over the season, Rossi ended up, runner-up on points was he sort of the most most impressive challenger because obviously with the scoring system it does privilege an IndyCar you know you need to be relentlessly getting getting the results and you see someone like Will Powers third but he had a slightly up and down start to the season before he got those uh, those two wins one of which being the Indy 500 those two early wins that sort of launched the season on his way and there's all there's always drivers who kind of fade in and out and you could you can there's often reasons why they could have been championship challengers but problems outside their control yeah get in the way in the case of Rossi he was able to just react to things so if something was going wrong on strategy wise or they didn't quite have the Cindy one to they were always able to react and Rob Edwards calling the strategy always had the right idea but that counts very little if your driver can't execute on it and Rossi was able to do that time and time again when there was a move that had to be made and you know it was 50-50 he would make that move you know there's a little bit of needle earlier in the season between him and Robert Wickens when that was down to Wickens learning what is and isn't acceptable in wheel-to-wheel combat in IndyCar, whereas Rossi had had the experience and he'd hit that level now where he'd gotten comfortable with the car, he knew what he was able to do, he'd gotten used to all the various quirks of IndyCar and then he could show that raw pace and it was a real strong season from him. It's just a shame that it was Scott Dixon ahead of him. 
he was very good at just taking control of a race weekend as well, wasn't yeah. he? There were, I think, three weekends where just no one other than Rossi really got a look in. And they were all on completely different tracks as well. Long Beach, Street Course, Mid-Ohio, Road Course, Pocono, Oval. Yeah, that he could he could properly dominate a race, whatever was going on elsewhere in the field. And that was, that was possibly ominous for the future if Rossi and Andretti keep going in, on this sort of form. And the other thing as well, I think, when we talk about the quality of a driver like Dixon, I think it's easy for people to say with rose-tinted specs, oh, well, IndyCar's not what it once was. And in many ways, it isn't, because it's changed a lot. It's a, it's a series with a with a, a spec chassis. Obviously, you've got a couple of engine manufacturers. But you look at the quality up the front, you see Alexander Rossi in second, unquestionably a future champion, already a 500 winner. Will Power, former champion, 500 winner. Ryan Hunter-Ray, former champion, 500 winner. Joseph Newgarden, reigning champion going into the season. Simon Pagano, former champion. Sebastian Bourdais, who dominated Champ Car for many years. That's a that's a pretty remarkable roll call of drivers up the front. It's not like you've, it's not like, like in cricket, you call it a flat track bully, someone who scores a lot of runs on an easy batting pitch. This is a hard championship to win. I think it's stronger now, strength and depth wise, than it was even in its kind of late 90s Champ Car heyday. You know, I, I, I grew up watching that. I was the, the biggest kart fan in Dorset in like 96 to 98 when I was a teenager. Was that a closely fought competition? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, I tried to win over everybody I bumped into when I was like thrusting VHS tapes them to get them record, to record Eurosport for me. But um, no, it was probably just me. But I was very passionate about it. And I was convinced Zanardi would sweep into F1 and blitz everyone like he had in Champ Car and had a fairly painful awakening on that front. But if you look at the grids that Zanardi was beating, they were massively better than what Mansell had to be a few years earlier. But still, you get down to the midfield and find people who you were thinking, obvious pay driver, failed in Europe, that sort of thing. That it was the, the field tailed off. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't for a moment argue that everybody in this year's IndyCar field was a future F1 driver or, an, or, a, or someone who'd been overlooked by F1. But it, you know, there weren't many people who looked out and thought, mm, "You probably shouldn't be there." Overall, I, I do think that kind of, let's say maybe in the in the Champ Car heyday, probably seventy five percent of the grid was absolutely there on merit. Now it's probably nearer ninety, and and there's not many international series that can say that. We just have to look down the championship or look into the kind of mid teens, and you've got drivers like uh, Tony Kanaan <laughs> down, yeah. down there. I mean, regardless of uh, the, the the equipment. And you know this this is a, a, a seriously a seriously competitive championship. Yeah, the, the midfield's where it's changed. We've now got a situation where Penske, Andretti, Ganassi have always been strong and always will be strong, but we've now got several teams that are able to take advantage of any slip-ups. Schmidt Peterson, James Hinchcliffe winning a race this year after being bumped from the Indy 500. Yeah, there was a staffing restructure there to bring out the confidence in him again, but he's able to win races. Wickens, the only thing he didn't do this year was win a race. Delcoin Racing, uh, Sebastian Bourdais, you know, the f- constant frustration there is how good he is and he's in a, a limited environment, rotating teammates, the financial pressures that come with it, but having the Vassar and Sullivan punch it there, they were bringing some real resources. It wasn't just a branding exercise. I mean, he's up there. There were a couple of races. You know, He won one at St. Petersburg, but he was in contention and a couple of others. The fact that there's two or three teams now around there that are able to do that. And further down, we've got teams that start to build up as well. AJ Foy Racing's had a couple of really bad years. It's decided to start again, bring Kanan in for the experience and have Mateo Slice as the young driver ready to take over in the future, ideally. There's a lot of signs that, yes, the field's going to grow, we know that, but the quality is going to improve as well. I think perception-wise, there are still a couple of drivers at the back where you do wonder why they're there beyond money that do struggle. But there, as Matt said, there are certainly a lot less of those now. Well, let's hear from our man on the ground in, in the IndyCar paddock, David Malsher, who's covered that form of racing for a long time, so I know Scott Dixon very, very well. He has been and seen it all now. He's been through every kind of very 
it was a case of going up against uh, the might of uh, Helio and Penske, but he absolutely dominated that championship. You know, then he had to tackle Dario being on the same team for, and uh, got beaten all three times in uh, 2009, 2010, 2011. But he learned from that, and to be perfectly honest, it was mainly uh, luck that separated the two. Yeah, if, if that foot from the start of the Monty Python uh, flying circus uh, graphics was to come down on any one person in the IndyCar field, it would generally be Scott Dixon. And he learned learned a lot from uh, Dario's uh, work ethic, his methodology, and the ability to stay calm. I mean, it's funny that he's had this Iceman image, because it hasn't been accurate. You only need to hear him on the radio to realize that that's, you know, he gets as pent up as any other uh, ace driver when it comes down to the crunch and in the middle of the actual individual fight. But uh, he doesn't doesn't hold grudges, uh, recognizes who his uh, enemies are and just keeps playing the game to the best of his ability, you know. Yeah, I've seen him absolutely looking like the rug's been pulled out from under him. Uh, absolutely devastated by a couple of uh, Long Beach screw-ups. I have zero idea why it's always Long Beach that uh, he uh, ends up getting kicked in the crutch. But, you know, with the exception of 2015, he's had some real, really tough near misses, you know, having to have a late splash and dash or, uh, you know, having Simon Pagan now allowed to get away with carving carving off the end of uh, the pit lane in front of him, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, he kind of composes himself, you know, lets bygones be bygones and just moves on and with this kind of determination to just absolutely, you know, hammer his opponents in, in the next, you know, the next opportunity. Yeah, aside from anything else, uh, he's a very complete driver. He's, uh, like all the veterans that want to stay on top of their game, he's an absolute... Uh, you know, fitness fanatic, uh, you know, the same as uh, Power and Hunter Ray and, uh, and Helio, uh, actually. And I think that has helped him, but he's also willing to learn. I heard from a very good source that at Sonoma, for example, uh, this last weekend, although it's not to his style, uh, he found that the best way to look after his tyres was to run less front wing and uh, have it, you know, quite understeery. Uh, and, you know, take the shallowest arc to some of the hairpins and it uh, kept the tyres under him on a very important weekend for doing that because the red tyres, you know, were very, very peaky and uh, so it was important to preserve that rubber for a whole, whole stint. So there's that, you know, willingness to adopt a different style. I mean, one of the things that unites all champions, I think, is this can-do attitude. Dixon is not the kind of guy to pull into the pits and say, I can't drive this, uh, you know, fix it so that I can. You know, he's willing to adapt his style to uh, the needs of the car rather than uh, have the car completely turned upside down back to front in order to make it fit his style. It's interesting because he clearly sounds like a driver who's kind of got that, to use an F1 comparison, the kind of Prost-like ability to work with the car, work with the team. But actually, in a piece you recently wrote for motorsport.com, you talked about his driving style. You contrasted it with Frank Hitty when they were racing together. Frank Hitty was a bit more the sort of Prost style, whereas Dixon is able to maybe hustle the car and react a little bit more. So, so what can you tell us about, about the way he, he drives? Definitely, yeah, 
uh, he would be more like um, <laughs> trying to think. Uh, if if we were to make uh, F1 style as a comparison, I'd say uh, you know like a John Lacy, very reactive. Uh, yeah, able to handle whatever the the car is doing. Yeah, probably a bit nearer the edge. Uh, I mean, you never saw Frank Eaty make many mistakes. Scott, I don't know. I wouldn't say he made more mistakes, but he definitely got the impression that he was nearer the edge. Uh, fabulous car control, but possibly made life quite hard for himself, whereas uh, Dario, I think it's a very fair comparison to Prost. But, you know, in terms of pace, they're very, very even, both in race pace and in qualifying because again Dario was less near the edge because he had worked with the car to make it do uh, more of the work um, so yeah quite often uh, Scott especially I remember a couple of occasions at like uh, Milwaukee where he uh, made a mistake because the car was just too edgy and uh, yeah Dario uh, nailed a fantastic pole lap, uh, I'm trying to recall what year, 2011, that absolutely no one in the field could match. And it was just because he had set his car up absolutely perfectly, so he didn't have to do uh, all these corrections. But whichever way is most effective, I mean, geez, they've won, they won nine, <laughs> nine championships between them. Uh, so, yeah, you could argue the case for either guy uh, there. But, yeah, like I said, the Sonoma... You know, he became a slightly more rounded driver. He, his car was a bit more understeery, and it made you realise that, yeah, this is a guy that uh, keeps on learning and can find uh, other ways. I mean, the number of mistakes, Scott, or significant mistakes uh, that Scott Dixon made this year, or indeed last year, could be you know counted on the fingers of one stump. Really, it's just absurd how much of a margin uh, he is now able to build into his driving. So he's not living on the edge so much and yeah it, it comes down to consistency and frankly there's no one better at accumulating points yeah there's a couple of drivers that are probably faster uh, over one single flying lap and that can make a hell of a difference on certain road courses where it's tough to pass but how many of them are there i mean i think rossi proved at sonoma that it is possible to pass on pretty much any uh, road course and uh, the much derided sonoma was in fact yeah, you just got to have the desire and, I guess, in Rossi's case, the desperation, and you can't pull off uh, passes. So maybe qualifying has just taken the back seat to, uh, for Dixie. I mean, he only started from Paul once this year, and that's because of the rain out at Gateway that uh, forced the championship to be, uh, the grid to be decided by championship order. Uh, so, yeah, I, obviously he wants to qualify as near the front as possible, but. Uh, I think it's important also to bear in mind that when you're trying to find those last infinitesimal details to um, yeah, get the screw the last kind of tenth or tenth and a half in qualifying, that's when you could really do with a teammate that drives uh, as well as you and in a similar style. And uh, Dixie hasn't Dixie hasn't had that for quite some time. He's also one of those drivers who, kind of out of the car, he's very unflashy whenever he's interviewed. He's very straightforward and will always give the team credit, won't talk himself up. What, what can you kind of tell us about him as a, as a kind of individual? What is it that drives him? What sort of passion does he have for this? Because he's clearly to have been so good for so long. 
willing to put in tremendous work and effort to, to sustain this level at a time when some other drivers might have been tempted to rest on their laurels. Yeah, uh, I think that's a very good point. He fits in very, very well with the philosophy that's kind of quite prevalent in the US Open Wheel and I see less of in F1 in that he's always willing to say, look, this was a team effort. I didn't carry the car on my back. This was something where everyone uh, contributed. You know, he gets as much joy from being able to say that he and the team outthought the competition in terms of getting, you know, the right race day set up as he is from, you know, being able to say, oh, yeah, I drove the nuts off it and uh, beat everyone. If you like, he's the antithesis of Nigel Mansell. He doesn't say that, oh, they gave me a good car, but it was me who made the difference. He's more than happy to say, you know, we all thought about it, went over the data in the engineering truck and, you know, did calculations based on, you know, temperatures and how that would affect the tyres. And, yeah, we just outthought the opposition. Texas this year was a prime example. He did nothing special in qualifying, but cometh the hour, cometh the man. And, uh, you know, Penske had qualified, I think, one, two, three. And he just left them for dead once the once the race got going. So, yeah, they all screwed their tyres. And uh, he didn't. And that's, like I say, credit where it's due. Also... Uh, fosters a lot of um, uh, kind of like team spirit. They all want to work with him. Yeah, I know a couple of people who are massively pissed off when they got transferred from the number nine to another car in the Ganassi lineup. Uh, and I'm not referring to Ed Jones this year, but they all wanted to be with Dixon because everyone congregates around the guy that's you know going to get you results. And yeah, since Dario's enforced retirement in 2013, the only Ganassi driver who you could guarantee was going to get you results was Mr. Dixon. Um, so I think that's uh, definitely part of the magic chemistry uh, within that team. Nothing ever seems, to, you know, they, they have the same kind of calmness that you see at Penske. All these elite teams, there's no panic in them. That's such an important uh, factor to play in when it comes down to crunch time in, in the championship. Because of the way Dixon goes about things, he, like all the greats, he, he kind of almost makes winning look easy. Whenever it gets to the end of the race and he's won, it feels like, well, of course he has, he's got Dixon. He he often does. Do you think it's very easy to underappreciate a driver like that because he's so unflashily effective? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'd agree with that. But, you know, you just need to look at the stats and, you know, people like Parnelli Jones or, you know, more recently Justin Wilson, they, of course, don't have the stats to match up to their talent, so you can't take can't take the stat book completely seriously. You know, in the same way that Gilles Villeneuve only got six Grand Prix wins and uh, Sterling Moss only got sixteen, and yet uh, Lewis Hamilton now has a zillion. But that doesn't make them incomparable across uh, the three of them. But you do have to look at you know wins per year and. Unfortunately, I haven't in preparation for this interview. Uh, but, you know, the fact is you can pretty much rely on Dixie getting two or three every year. But you can also rely on him more than you can any of his competitors. The fact that he will also not screw up the other ones. Chip has this philosophy of if he can't be first, be second. If he can't be second, be third. And that has been absolutely nailed by... Dixie 
also last year when he was struggling with a manufacturer aero kit that just didn't want to play, play ball on uh, you know most of the tracks but he just has this monumental ability to turn lemons into lemonade and I, I, I don't see that talent fading for as long as he remains motivated now he's just signed another three-year contract with Chip that will take him to his 21st year in IndyCar racing uh, and he'll be 41 by then and while he remains fit and motivated I don't see why he cannot match AJ Foy and earn you know seven titles you know and I think the the part that I haven't mentioned yet is that it is now so damn tough in IndyCar because everyone's got the same gear except for the differences in engines. Uh, and sure, Ganassi have an advantage uh, over much of their opposition because of the facilities and the money and you know the resources that Chip puts into it because he's such a, a driven man. But Chip Ganassi has also assembled all the best components to take uh, you know, human resources to take full advantage of the equipment that he's prepared to uh, buy, and that's reflected every year by the you know consistency, the success. Well, basically, since 2007 through to what are we now? 11 years, 12 years on, uh, 12 seasons on from that, Dixon has finished in the top three in the championship all but one of those years. Now, even with the best facilities on offer that is not just down to having the best equipment that is down to him just being absurdly talented at making the most of what he's got and the fact that he's able to accumulate these championships and accumulate this consistency when he's fighting against you know Penske drives of the quality of willpower Joseph Newgarden and also in the past Helio Castro Neves who was ridiculously quick on his day and now we've got you know, Ryan Hunter Ray and Alexander Rossi uh, also right up there in the fight. The fact that Scott can beat all comers is, yeah, superb testament to him as a driver, but also to, uh, you yeah, know, Chip Ganassi Racing as an environment in which he can fully exploit his talents and also constantly learn. You know, I think a big shout out also to Chris Simmons, for whom this was a fifth uh, championship uh, he worked with. Dario before and you know like I say two very different drivers and in some ways two very different uh, philosophies at first but the greats always are, are always the hardest workers the true greats and uh, without question Mr Dixon belongs in that category. Well long may it continue a combination of a great driver and a great team Strikes me there's going to be a lot more wins and maybe championships to come. Thanks very much, David Melcher, for your input. It's been great to uh, get your insight as you've watched Scott Dixon for many years, and I'm sure you'll be there for, for plenty of those wins that are to follow. Well, let's talk a little bit more about where IndyCar is at the moment, because that's crucial to Scott Dixon's performance level. If you consider it to be a backwater series and you think, well, he's just winning easily, but it, it, it's it's not that, is it? It's becoming a championship. You know, Even F1 has had a look at IndyCar as a for possible ideas for for direction for how to make the cars able to race and, and to follow each other and of course Dixon maybe in another in another life he could have been in Formula One as well he's certainly a driver of the caliber that he he, he could have done that um, Matt you know that the, the way IndyCar is at the moment it has it has grown a lot his first IndyCar title was in 2003 his first full season in, in 
what, what we sort of call the, the IRL. The, the IRL, exactly. Yeah. Um, he won a race in, in a couple of seasons in kart. But then to come in and, and win straight away, you could say, well, it's still a championship growing. We haven't had a unification yet. You could put an asterisk by that if you wanted to. But the fact that he sustained that says a lot. And the fact that as the championship's got better and better and better, he's a member of the old guard who's always got... So if if he's not stayed at exactly the same level, he's got better with it. Well, if anything, it feels like he stayed at the same level because you look at all his contemporaries. I know people like Canaan and Castro and Evers were a couple of years earlier than Scott Dixon, but not that much really. And um, I think it is fair to say that they've definitely faded. Certainly they're not at the level that Scott Dixon's managed to maintain. If you look at the people who were coming into F1 at the same time Dixon was coming into Champ Car, um, you know, Alonso will be out of F1 after this year. Button's gone, uh, Montoya fizzled out possibly it burnt very brightly and then then declined and obviously Kimi Räikkönen is moving down the grid now so people of Dixon's age at, at 38 are starting to tail off um, quite understandably and there's just no sign of him doing that doing that whatsoever um, I'd say right from the outset when he first turned up as the Indy Lights champion in, in Champ Car he was achieving things of what was then the Pac West car that the previous incumbents in the team, um, Blundell and Gujamin, certainly hadn't been able to for a good few years. The the first win he got in his rookie season was a bit of a fuel mileage um, freak, but he was still in a position to do that when a lot of people hadn't been in smaller teams at the time. So that that talent was always absolutely there. Um, you know, I think it was uh, 109 laps on the, uh, on the final tank at Nazareth in 2001. And what was he then... 20-ish, uh, about three or four races into his champ car career, you know, to do that, okay, passing on the one-mile ovals wasn't wasn't the easiest thing by that point with the way the aero had gone and the rules, but, you know, that took an awful lot of racing now, so he was pulling that off under pressure really early in his career, and that was such a sign of of what was possible. I do think his first American title in, in what was then the Indy Race League in 2003, I'd still put a bit of a question mark over that whole run of IRL titles for everyone, sadly, because the equipment was quite limited, the racing was oval only. Um, there were times when just two teams were running away with it with the engine imbalance. Certainly his his latter few titles were were harder earned. But even then he was he was made, he was pulling off championship victories in chaotic, unpredictable, millimeters apart pack racing and just showing his his skill for getting things done in a in a crazy situation. And also, Tom, at thirty eight, he still presumably got quite a lot of life left in him as a uh, as an IndyCar driver yeah I mean he signed a <clears throat> try that again <clears throat> I mean he signed a, a new multi-year deal with Ganassi I mean that's an extra couple of years at least the fact that when McLaren were looking early on at drivers for next season the fact they went straight to Scott Dixon and Will Power suggests they still think he's got plenty of years left in him as well and he absolutely does as Matt said his contemporaries have faded and he's just shown absolutely no sign of that whatsoever so if you're someone like Ganassi what would be the point in replacing him no, exactly, and and I imagine he. I mean, he's clear. He's still he's still motivated. I guess probably the thing he wants most of all now is to actually add to his 2008 Indy 500 when he's always been quick there. Yeah. He's had a few poles in recent years there, but it's just this uh, this unusual fact that he's won all these titles, but just that one Indy win. Yeah, I mean, despite being consistently one of the best performers there, I have no doubt that following his title win, he'll have had a few hours to celebrate, and then we'll have instantly started thinking about what he's going to do in 2019. Because as Matt alluded to, with with what he's like as a person, he's just entirely a big picture person. It's I've done this, I move on to the next thing. Yes, that's not particularly exciting for journalists or fans, but that's exactly how a racer should think. And I think as well, even though maybe. Well, last year with Alonso as an exception, and there's always a few one-off entries. It's not like Indy is a championship in itself. The lineup is broadly the same at the front, but I do think teams throw resources at Indy. If you know, if you're in a position where 
you might not be winning the championship, you do lean your development ideas and your setup and your resources towards trying to smash Indy, trying to get in that fast nine at Indianapolis. So I do think the competition's even tougher there. So perhaps in a way it's not surprising that his record at Indy hasn't you know, hasn't produced another win yet because it is a bit tougher. But I'd be amazed if he retired without notching up at least one more. I think that you're right. With five titles but only one Indy 500 win, that is that is it's not exactly a missing piece. He's won one, but it would kind of seal his career off nicely to do a bit more of that before he goes. As I say, it's a race that chooses you to win, doesn't it? I remember well, was yeah. at Indy last year, he had the massive accident, which has not anything to do with him. No. Uh, with, uh, with Jay Howard hitting the wall and he just got launched into this <laughs> huge, huge crash. In a race, he was extremely, he was incredibly quick, both in race and qualifying conditions uh, that, that week. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot already about how Dixon finds a way to get through situations that was one situation he had no hope of getting through no, and it was, I, don't, I don't know there's any I think the, the getting through that situation was making sure you didn't hit anything too troubling while, while in the air so thank yeah. God he did get out but of course we should say we did mention that maybe in another life he could have been Formula 1 he did briefly have a bit of a flirtation with Formula 1 after winning that 03 title he did uh, I think four days of testing for for Williams and uh, it was interesting because it never really went anywhere else. There was sort of a vague interest in him as a potential drive for the future, but uh, I think he so I think he did a day at Paul Ricard and he did three days at Catalonia in the, the first part of uh, I think it was March and April two thousand and four and the uh, he sort of did some of the testing donkey work and he was meant to on the last day at Catalonia be able to go out with the the right tyres and show a bit of sheer speed, but then there was some rain and the gearbox problem, so he never kind of got to do that that quick halo lap if you like, and I think maybe if he'd had the chance to do that, people would talk about that a bit more as. Because oh, sometimes you hear about these drivers who do this great test, but it never quite worked out for them. Whereas Dixon, I think you saw people say, "Oh, yeah, I forgot he tested for for Williams." But uh, you know, I think it's probably good he didn't go down that road because Williams wasn't in a great uh, in a great uh, situation there. But it just shows there was interest in him as a, as a as a Formula One driver, and I've no doubt he'd have he'd have excelled. Yeah, I think his timing wasn't wasn't great through no fault was there, and it felt like that was the era when F1's temporary fascination with plucking people out of the US series was starting to fade. This is post Sonardi, of course. Well, indeed, yeah. Montoya came in and was spectacular and fantastic, but I think you know people probably fairly quickly felt he wasn't going to have the consistency to be a Schumacher beater as he might have looked. Zanardi, heartbreakingly, heartbreakingly for me as an eighteen-year-old, absolutely tanked in F1 the second time around, and. Um, Demata's F1 move, I think you'd best say, was adequate. Really, had had some high points, but you would you would hope that someone coming out of having dominated Kart the way he had just before he left might have done better with Toyota. So I think Dixon was tested by Williams at a time when F1 was perhaps losing interest a little bit. Williams wasn't the best place to be going at that moment anyway. It was about to to really go into its full slide. Obviously, that was the the year after it last looked like a title contender. So, yeah, I think you're right. It was a lucky escape. I'm sure he would have done a decent enough job in F1, but perhaps for his overall reputation, it's better that uh, that didn't crop up at the time. Yeah, I don't think it would have, would have probably gone anywhere for him with uh, the competitiveness of that team sliding away. Yeah, it's an interesting point now as well about the losing the fascination because Liberty being in charge of F1 now, that fascination seems to be back a little bit. Obviously, Joseph Newgarden was at the 2017 US Grand Prix and obviously questions were raised then about should he do F1. But the interesting thing I like is that all this new talent, young talent that's coming into IndyCar, which can be the face of IndyCar, like Rossi and Newgarden, which hopefully become a really interesting title dynamic in the coming years. If you ask either of them about would they like to go to F1, there is absolutely a fascination to do that. But there is also the realisation of why would you leave a Penske and Andretti to go and drive in the midfield because you're not going to get a Mercedes, Ferrari or a Red Bull seat. And it's absolutely the right attitude to have. Go to stay in America where you can make a decent living, actually have the reward for your driving talents rather than go to F1 and just be forgotten about effectively. I also think now that whereas 
20 odd years ago, F1 was looking to Champ Car and going, which drivers should be over here? Now it's looking to IndyCar and going, what ideas can we nick more than the drivers necessarily? Mm. It's looking at the quality of racing, it's looking at the quality of the show, a bit of the promotion. And with Liberty in charge of F1, it's potentially cherry picking some IndyCar ideas for its future future rules and future race promotions. I'm not sure F1's that fussed about getting New Garden across. I, I imagine the F1 paddock feels it saw enough of Rossi when he was doing GP2 and then briefly with Manor. But in some ways, even though I wouldn't say IndyCar is the F1 feeder, it, it briefly seemed in the 90s, um, it's probably got the potential to influence F1 more than it, it had it had back then. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And that's testament to the work IndyCar's done in recent years to try and kind of fight back in the war with NASCAR that it was it was losing quite emphatically at one stage. And now, while I wouldn't say it's winning, it's it, it certainly strengthened significantly. And it'll be interesting to keep track of that in the in the future. Let's just have a look at where Scott Dixon stands among the, the all-time greats. Obviously, what we might generically call champ car racing, American open wheel racing. Five titles puts him second only to AJ Foyt. He's got seven titles. One of those was the final USAC title, I think, if memory serves. The, that sounds the, right, yeah. The, when, they, when Kart split away, so I'm not sure how much that counts. But, you know, AJ Foyt, a legend. Mario Andretti's only got four titles. You've got Sebastian Bourdais, Dario Franchitti on four. Rick Mears and Alonso Senior have only got three. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing to be ahead of these guys. And, and also, you, if Dixon carries on racing as long as most of those guys did, he'll win about 22 titles by that time. Well, that's a good point. Andretti's <laughs> last full season, he was 53. Yeah. Foyt, Foyt was qualifying on the front row at Indy at 56. <laughs> so uh, that, that could give him another 15-odd years, yeah. uh, or, or in case of Foyt, even more. Uh, but in terms of wins, Foyt, 67 wins. Mario Andretti, 52 wins. Scott Dixon, 44. Michael Andretti, 42. Alonso, 39. Now, this isn't just... I mean, these numbers confer greatness on him as a, as a generic IndyCar driver, don't they? There's no question about that. But you know, how, how great do we do we think he is? Is he right to be up there in the same breath as perhaps people like Mario Andretti and AJ Foyt are tricky comparisons because they have very diverse and unusual careers in terms of what they did. But as an IndyCar exponent, he's he's got to be up there in the conversation, hasn't he? Yeah, it's one of those, it's the classic playground debate, isn't it? And it's really tricky to compare areas. But I think one of the things that's in Scott Dixon's favour is, is the current climate of kind of spec cars. That puts so much more onus on a driver to perform and, and be there. And the fact that Dixon is always that cut above contemporaries like Will Power and stuff, and who particularly in terms of polls can be considered an all-time great as well against some of those names, says a lot. And I think... It's n- funny, isn't it? Because both Foyt and Andretti had teams built around them. Andretti at Newman House, which is a one-car team yep. for a long time until Michael Andretti came in and obviously Foyt as, as well. Yep. So that, that it's funny, you sort of automatically think that because it's not multi-make that that almost diminishes it. But actually yep. when you make the argument you've just made, it, it it adds up, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look at the longevity of some of the driver and team relationships in America compared to Europe as well. Obviously Dixon's been with Ganassi for nearly two decades now. Penske's had these long relationships with people like Rick Mears way back uh, Alonso Jr. and then more more recently Castro Neves. Um, Andretti is building a long thing with Ryan Hunter Ray. Dri- and if you look at NASCAR as well, drivers big drivers moving between big teams is relatively rare compared to the European scene. And I think that does show that the the driver team relationship is so important with how nuanced strategy gets, with how close the cars are, with it being m- pretty much one make. Um, when you've got a relationship that works with a driver and a team and an engineer, they they definitely stick with it. I think some of that is for the marketing and sponsor reasons as well, because that's even more tightly entwined. But yeah, definitely. It, do, it does show that, okay, this might be one make racing, but the, the human characteristic in it is really, really important and teams really prize that as well. Yeah, And the aspect you mentioned as well, obviously doing it pure in numbers, 
there's elements to an intercalation that's nothing to do with numbers. The Andretti family curse, the Indy 500 example, is almost as legendary as all the victories and all the titles and that side as well. So, yeah, there's just so many facets to it. And it probably sounds like we're copping out of making a big decision here, but it's it's just so difficult to compare eras, particularly when you look at how tumultuous uh, IndyCar as a whole's history has been with splits unifying and various other moments that could only really happen in America. I, I guess it kind of reflects as well that Dixon just sort of gets, and gets on with it all. You know, he's gone through a, a split era, but it's just, it's just, I'm just going to be sit here and sit here and winning races and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to agitate. I'm just going to, I'm just going to get on with being an, an exception you could drive in it. That, it. That's why it does seem so, it seems much more strange to compare Scott Dixon to a Foyt and an Andretti than it does to compare Lewis Hamilton to a Fangio or a Clark for some reason, even though, see, things have changed so much, but the, the landscape is so unusual, should we say? It's in, been a lot more US. unstable and, I think the best way of looking at it is Foyt and Andretti had dirt tracks to deal with at times and in their area you had to go off and race other things to, to prove yourself and it was the culture at the time as well. Had Dixon been in that era, I've got no doubt whatsoever, he'd have been very handy on dirt, very handy in NASCAR, one load of Can-Am races on the side as well. And equally, Of course he's won the Daytona 24 hours well, yeah, and he's absolutely. excelled in the Ganassi 4GC program as well. Yeah, absolutely. So he he's proved that versatility even though it's not quite the crazy level of versatility that the uh, the Foyt Andretti contemporaries had he's I'm just, I do think it's fair to say he's had a deeper field to beat than they had I think that's true of a lot of modern motorsport that the strength and depth does go further back now so yeah it is impossible to compare eras there is that cliche but in terms of getting the absolute best out of the challenge in front of them in terms of the opposition and the calendar and the championships that were around he's absolutely comparable to the to the all-time greats no doubt about that I think when you compare some of the drivers around, for example, Bourdais not that far behind with four titles and he's got uh, 37 wins, but there is a bit of an asterisk by that. I really rate Bourdais. I think he's a fantastic driver. And I think in stronger machinery, he'd be a title contender in IndyCar week in, week out. But there is an asterisk by that in that the period he did that in in Champ Car with the best team in Newman House was not, it's just not as competitive. So you can sort of say, well, sheer volume, we know he's really good, but just the achievements sort of almost pale in comparison to what Dixon has done. Yeah, you get you get the elements that, that Matt mentioned as being really important in, in that Bordeaux run, though. If you speak to anyone who engineered Bordeaux at that time, from the outside, a lot of people took the easy option of complaining that Bordeaux liked to whine or was difficult to work with. But you speak to anyone within the team, the way he motivated, the way he got them to do certain things he wanted, oh, the way he made sure he was ahead. Absolutely. So you can almost put aside the fact that the competition might not have been there because he still got the absolute maximum and showed all the qualities you know that led to the Formula One chance, for example. Yeah, no question. But because Dixon, of the circumstances he's in, has been able to to show through many, uh, in a wider range of, shall we say, circumstances, wider range of opposition, etc., which is often what elevates elevates drivers. I think probably Bourdais could be up there if he if he had a slightly different different career. I really race him. I think Formula One didn't see the best of him. That's definitely true. Yeah, 2003 was definitely a kind of game-changing year because you'd had a few years where teams have had a foot in both camps and then Penske going to the IRL in 2002 was a big swing away from Champ Car. 2003 was the the year of the biggest exodus of all kind of headlined by what was then Andretti Green coming over with its full operation and Ganassi bringing its top drivers over to the IRL and dropping Champ Car completely and that was the year Dixon won his first title and I also think it was equally significant that he won the first unified title in 2008 when everything came back together. Those years of of change and unpredictability in a way same with the rule changes for this year he's come out on top and i think that does say a lot it's also really nice that you're saying about uh, asterisks against people's titles as someone who's 
been a big fan of American single-seater racing for so long and remembered the split being such a terrible time for how it was perceived. It's great that Asterisk over people's titles because the fields were too weak sounds so long ago now. And we've had 10 years of a really strong unified series with a really high-quality grid. And the idea of thinking, well, that guy's good, but he's not beating these other 10 guys who are in the rival series, that is now ancient history. And that's, that's brilliant. The fact Dixon's got four out of five titles in a unified era, that does count for a lot. No, very much so. And I think that's a and that's a very good place to finish on. Unless Tom, you've got anything urgent you want to you, you want to add. I think you never you can never really reflect on where drivers are until the dust settles on their career. And hopefully, that'll be many years before before Scott Dixon retires. But even if he said tomorrow, actually, do you know what? I'm going to retire and do something else. He'd, he'd be he'd be right up there. And uh, I guess it's in a way it's a bit of a shame that as we're talking about what drivers like Andretti and Foyt could do in the past, that you can't have quite such a diverse career anymore by the very, very nature of uh, of the motorsport landscape. Well, Ganassi's uh, managing director, Mike Cole, said after the Sonoma race, Dixon's going to be someone who you just remember as Scott in 10 years' time in the same way that Andretti is now Mario to everyone. When he retires, you'll reflect and see just how good his career was, just who he was beating and just what an impact he made. And in the meantime, we can just enjoy it and go into most IndyCar seasons thinking he's the person to beat. And then when he finally does stop, we look back and go, yeah, that was really special. Even though he didn't shout very loudly about it himself, that was really special. Exactly. And part of that not shouting very loudly is what is what makes him special. Well, please head to autosport.com to see all the latest news about IndyCar, Formula One, the whole rest of the world of motorsport, our plus subscriber area, where you can, uh, for a small a small monthly fee, take a look at some of the best writing from some of the leading motorsport writers out there. Please pick up a copy of Sister Title F1 Racing, print magazine out monthly, and also check out motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, have a look at Pit Stop Betting as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one dollar. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just one dollar. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.